Hi, my name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Molly Keck. And we are with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. This week on Bugs by the Yard, we are talking about a, another social insect, which is super exciting. And this one probably, while it's a really cool insect, uh, biologically speaking, if people have it in their yards, they're generally not too terribly thrilled about it. Mm-mm. And those are going to be the Texas leafcutter ants. A scientific name of these are Atatexana. So yes, these are native to Texas. <laughs> So even though they are a native species, they can turn into a pest, which can be somewhat irritating for homeowners. Do you have these on your property? No, I don't. I want to say I wish I did, but just like you, if so I always tell people, if you don't have them, you think they're awesome. If you have them, you absolutely hate them because they seem like they're very exotic, like they should be tropical. I don't think people realize that they are native to Texas, but they are. And there's other species, right, that are found all over yeah. the world. I bet if you're in West Texas, you probably don't see them very often, but Central West. Central to East. To Louisiana. They even go over to Louisiana, yeah. And I think that's where they stop. I don't think they go past Louisiana or North into other Yeah, um, I think states. it's just Texas and Louisiana. So we're special, which is we kind are. of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you don't have them to deal with. But these are also called, other than leafcutter ants, they're also called town ants and mm-hmm. they're also called parasol ants. And there's reasons for those names. For town ants, that kind of refers to their mounds that they make are kind of clustered in little town areas. And then, of course, leafcutter ants is because they cut leaves off of plants. And parasol ants actually are when they're carrying the, the little leaf sections that they have. Looks like a sail. Kind of looks like a little parasol, yeah, that they're they're carrying around. So, you know, they're, they're all appropriate names. You can enjoy it in your, well, not even in your neighbor's yard, in your friend's yard that lives nowhere close to you. You can, yeah, enjoy I was going to say, if they're in your neighbor's yard, then they're either in your yard or they will be soon. Yeah. <laughs> even if that neighbor's like a mile away, they're, they're probably going to be hitting you soon. I mean, people hate them. Yeah. And I don't blame and them. And these are, I'm going to say what medium to large ant, because they, the workers do come in varying sizes. They're what we call polymorphic, which essentially means they come in varying sizes and they're kind of a reddish brown ant. These often get mistaken with the harvester ant, which some people call the Texas red ant. And every Mm -hmm. time that people tell me I have red ants, I'm like, okay, you're going to have to give me more information than that. They're all red. I don't know which one you're talking about. But these are a reddish brown and the big key characteristic on these that I always look for are the spines. They have spines on their head and on their thorax, which unless you're an entomologist, you probably aren't looking for spines on the ant's head and thorax. But if you want to determine if you have leafcutter ants, I guess if you just find a random ant, that would be the best way. But, you know, if you see the mounds, they're rather distinctive, or, you know, obviously if you see ants carrying pieces of leaves around, those are going to be leaf cutter ants. So it's yes. kind of a dead giveaway right there. 
And the mounds look like volcanoes. So some people will, since they mound up, they'll think they're fire ants sometimes, but they have a, like a cavern and then a single entrance and exit hole that you do not see on fire ant mounds. Yeah. And they're, they're usually clustered, which, you know, unless you have a severe infestation of imported fire ants, you're not really going to have the mound clustering that you would get with the leaf cutter ants. Yeah. Like a, it could be a hundred foot uh, square foot area and yeah. you've got, you know, 25 of those, you know, bubbling out of the ground. Massive, massive amounts. Yes. They're all over the place up here. Do you guys have a lot of them down there? Yeah. It seems like here they maybe prefer sandier soil, but we'll get them in rural areas. And then people that, you know, live in the, you know, the center of the city. In fact, many, many years ago now, 10 plus years ago, I I did a study with a company and we were looking for, for leafcutter ant mounds to treat. And one was downtown or South side San Antonio. So like truly an urban, the oldest urban area that you could be in San Antonio. So I guess they don't care what kind of soil it is, but sandy soil, I don't know. They tend to be real common there. Well, here in the Austin area, we kind of have that delineation of I-35 where our soils drastically change from one Mm -hmm. side to the other. You know, on the Western side, we have rockier soils. And on the Eastern side, we have black clay. They definitely have areas of preference. Usually the calls that I get are going to be somewhere along I'm going to say the lake, even though it's not a lake, it's actually the river, but we call it (laughs) Lady Bird Lake for some reason. I don't know. They're going to be near water. We used to have some down by our office, but they put in the new toll road. So I imagine that they're not there anymore. Dug them all up. Yeah, probably. (laughs) So, but yeah, they're again, they, they can be in the middle of the city. They can be out in the country. And I've seen cases of these where people don't, they don't have the mounds. They just have them popping up like little kind of exit holes coming out of the ground and they're trailing because they're a gardener and they have all the lush plants. And so those ants are living or their colony is somewhere else, like down the road. And Mm -hmm. the ants are tunneling and trailing down to where all of the good plants are. I've even seen them where they have tunneled like under the street. Oh, wow. And then they're like popping up across the street because people are like, I don't understand where these are coming from. And it's like, you need to start talking to your neighbors to find out who has mounds that look like this in their yard. And it's definitely one of those things. If you have that kind of thing going on, communication with your neighbors, finding out where they are, and then coordination to make sure that kind of everybody's on the same page, because if you're trying to manage them in your yard and everybody else is just kind of like, Oh, whatever, it's going to be horrible. Yes. (laughs) Not going to happen. The cool part that I find about these ants is that I consider these one of nature's gardeners Mm -hmm. because they essentially are going to collect vegetation from plants in the landscape. And they take it down into the ground in their colony and they have all these tunnels and chambers and all of that stuff. And they feed that plant material to these little fungus gardens that they grow. And they will then eat the fungus that they're growing. So they're farming their food, which is so cool. These are insects. (laughs) And this is, it's insane. I mean, (laughs) so cool and so neat. And 
I just, I love it. So it's one of those things that you kind of really, truly have to appreciate nature and evolution and how they have gotten to this part, because how long did it take humans to actually decide that we were going to start farming right? instead of doing hunting, gathering? It's just, and here we have insects that are just like, oh, hey, here we go. And I mean, it's to the point where they do have mating swarms where they have reproductives that, you know, leave the colony and they fly out and they pair up and they mate and do all of that stuff. The female of that has a little pouch that she carries a little bit of fungus in. So after she mates and she goes to start her new colony, (laughs) like a sourdough starter, she has a little fungus starter for her new colony. Oh my God, this is so cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Does she feed on it? Like, does she eat it so she can have some energy for laying the eggs until the eggs develop? I think no, because she has to use that to start her fungus garden. So it's like on fat reserves, just like the regular ants that she's caring for the young and whatnot. And then once those workers pop out, then she's like, okay, here we go. And they just start their little thing. And I'm just like that is possibly one of the coolest things ever. You have to explain what those reproductives look like because they look so different than the, than the workers. Huge. huge. Yes. With huge rear ends and very red. When people see the reproductives or what we call swarmers of these ants, they often panic because Mm -hmm. I would say that they are larger. A lot of people mistake them for the red wasps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah. the polistes that we get the paper wasps, but they're bigger. They are bigger yeah, than those fatter. wasps and they, they, yeah, they're definitely bulkier and they kind of have almost like rusty colored wings and they do have elbowed antennae that is kind of at a 90 degree angle and has that kind of split, which kind of is a giveaway for ants. These things, they're enormous. And when they swarm, they definitely say, here we are. <laughs> Yes. And it happens after a good rain event, usually when we haven't had a good rain event in a while and people will argue up and down with me. I know what a leafcutter ant looks like. This is not what that is. I'm like, just Google it. Just Google a picture of leafcutter ant alate. And then they're like, oh, or, or reproductive or swarmer. And I go, oh, I guess that is what it is. You may find them with or without wings because once they fly out of the colony and they find whoever they're mating with and they mate and they drop to the ground, the males are going to die. And then the females will actually chew off her wings so she can cunnel down into the ground. Their colonies are just, they're massive. I mean, Mm -hmm. absolutely huge. I've seen colonies where I don't even know. I mean, meters across, like 10 meters across in diameter and they're just enormous. And that's just like what you're seeing with the mounds on top of the ground. Tip of the iceberg. Who's to say what's going on underneath and where their tunnels are going. And it's just huge. And it's, this is another one. I definitely, definitely Google this because it's so cool. If you Google a leafcutter ant nest excavation, Mm -hmm. you'll actually see some of the ones where they have poured something down in to the mounds and solidified the tunnels and chambers and all that stuff. And then they're going through and they're excavating that. And it just kind of gives you an idea of how massive these things can be. And it's not just one queen in there, right? They have multiple queens. 
So that's one reason why it can get so big. Yeah. Huge, huge, absolutely huge. As far as these being problematic, they certainly can be, again, it depends on where they are. If they're in somebody else's yard that is far away from you, then look at them and study them and they're super cool. But when they come into your yard, they're going to be eating stuff in your landscape. They're going to often first go for the tender new growth of stuff. But at this time of the year, when we're talking about winter time and there may not be as much stuff for them, then they're going to go for whatever. They're not going to be terribly picky. I've noticed that there are certain plants that they really enjoy first in the landscape. It's like fruit trees, peach trees, citrus a little bit, but mainly peaches and then roses, crepe myrtles. And then after that, if you don't have those three or they've eaten or they've stripped those three things down in your landscape, then that's anything. Have Are there like plants that that people always say they're going after in your area? Usually it's, yeah, it's the the ones that people, everybody has in their landscape, you know, roses, crepe myrtles. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Like this, this is what I have. So this is what they're going after. I know it's annoying if they're eating your plants and that could be frustrating if they're defoliating things because that's causing stress on your plants. The other problem that I've run into is them excavating and creating colonies underneath the foundation of homes. Have you ever had that with people? Yes. I think they're definitely considered a structural pest because that vast void that they make, there's nothing supporting your foundation. Same thing with roads. I've known people that have driven over a road and it's fallen in while they're in their vehicle. Maybe not like a concrete or asphalt road, but just a dirt road to their property. I wouldn't be driving or doing anything real heavy over a big old leaf cutter ant mound. Yeah. So that's, it's one of those things that it really kind of needs to be, I'm going to say managed because Mm -hmm. I have not had any experience with somebody being able to get rid of these. Yeah. I mean, have you ever had anyone that's been able to successfully suppress? Cause also I don't think you can ever eliminate them necessarily, but you can try to suppress them. But has anyone ever had success suppressing them on their own without enlisting the help of a pest management professional? It depends on what their level of success is, I guess. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If someone's having in their, you know, they'll say I've been fighting these years and years and years and years and years. Well, in that case, you know, you've been spending a lot of money. It might be a good idea to hire someone to do it, do it better the first time, get six months of suppression. And then they come back out in six months instead of you constantly dousing the environment with pesticide and getting maybe 10% reduction, you know? And that also goes to what pesticides are being utilized as well with pest control companies versus the stuff that's available to homeowners. Right. There's a wide difference there. Yes. And I definitely encourage people if those mounds are within, you know, so many feet of their structure of their home, call a pest control company to come out because then it is considered a structural pest and they can use products that work really well against them that might actually give you elimination, but you cannot get your hands on probably as a homeowner. And you certainly don't have probably the tools to apply it properly. Right. With pest control companies, when you're dealing with trailing pest ants, there are labels that allow them to treat those trails of those ants, depending on where their location is. I mean, if they're just randomly somewhere off in the landscape, then no. But if they're like Molly said, within so many feet of the structure, then that can fit into the structural pest category. So you can treat those trails with that and that can help to knock back that population. And usually those pesticides are going to be regulated 
and it requires a license for you to utilize them. So that's why you would have to contact a pest control professional at that point. If you decide to go on your own and try to manage them, say they're in a pasture or something and they're eating your forage, well, that's probably not a good example because then you're going to have restrictions on stuff because there's cows in there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's, let's back up. You have five acres and they're not near the house. Yeah. We're going to go with that. But they're close to your garden or something in there really bothering you. Yeah. So if you have that and you have the mounds, then there is a hydromethanone bait that is available that you can broadcast with a handheld spreader over the mound area. And then there's also the spinosad bait that I've had people report that they've utilized that. And I'm going to say reports on both of these are kind of hit or miss. Yeah. Some people are like, oh yeah, it worked really great. And other people are like, it didn't really do anything. And I don't know, again, I haven't done the research on this. This wasn't me applying it. So I don't know if it was user application that was the problem, if it was that particular population of ants, where they were located, what was going on in the environment. I I don't know, but it seems to be hit or miss. In that study that we did, we evaluated a product that is no longer available. It was available in South America. It was actually a citrus pulp bait because they're attracted to citrus. And then the active ingredient in it was fipronil, I think. And it was super duper effective, but wasn't ever actually approved in the United States. And then we evaluated that against the hydromethanol bait. It's not the same as your regular fire ant amdro. It has like a sugar attractant, a sweet attractant, plus the protein. And so they're a little bit more attracted to it. And what I found, and I only got like 50% of the mounds had suppression. And even that, that was anywhere from only three months to maybe six months. Everything was active, no matter what I used by nine months again. So whatever you use, don't expect it to kill them. There's no silver bullet. What I found was that if you accidentally get anything down their holes, they hate it and they abandon that little area and they make another hole somewhere else. So don't pour anything down the holes. And then also if I saw them trailing and I sprinkled it along the trail where they were headed back into the nest. So they're carrying their food. Sometimes they would pick some of that up and take it in the nest. So those two things were usually I had better results that way. So I would go back out in two weeks. And if there was no suppression of their activity, then we retreated. So you might have to retreat every couple of weeks until you really start to see the populations go down to a level that your plants and you can tolerate because you're probably never going to have zero. And I think what we have found is that fall treatments give you better suppression through the spring and summer than doing a spring treatment. And that's because in the fall, they're starting to dip in their population size. So if you kill 50% of them, there's only 50% maybe in there. And so you've really killed a good chunk and there's less to ramp up in the springtime. So now's a good time. If they're active, give it a go. And you can pair that with other things. You just don't want to use it in the same area. If you get a, like a residual spray or a residual dust of some sort that just has ants on the label, it's not going to be labeled specifically for leaf cutter ants but you can just look for an ants general product and you can use that around the base of the plants that you want to protect or along the trails. As long as you are not baiting in that same area, you don't want to put the bait and the residuals in the same place because you would contaminate the bait and they would pick it up then. So you want to use those in two different areas. 
But even if you do that, it's just going to be a back and forth. You know, you knock Mm -hmm. back a portion of the population, you wait for it to kind of build back up. You treat them again, you knock back that portion of the population and it's a back and forth thing, which isn't the best answer, but it's all we got at this point. It is. The other thing that I also found was that apply when they're actively foraging. So if it's really hot, that's going to be in the evening. And although you might see them moving in and out of their mound, they're actually excavating and cleaning it. So if you put bait out, they're going to clean that up and not take it in. So do it when you actually see them carrying their little sails. And then people are saying, well, why not that? You know, there's such a big problem. Why don't we have anything? And that is because I guess because they're so pocketed that they're not widespread. There's really not a market. If we only have them in Texas and Louisiana, think about the millions, if not billions of dollars it takes to get a pesticide on the market for something. And they only have two states that are capable of using it. I mean, why are they going to spend that money on it? Yeah. Doesn't make economic sense. And so we're going to go with just the basic ant type products and do what we can with that, I guess. I mean, it used to be that people could fumigate, like do a ground fumigation with these. And of course that was a pest control professional licensed person that was doing that. But I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, how, how do you tarp that when you don't right. know where they all come out? It's just, <laughs> you're killing everything in that ground. I can understand why they don't do that anymore. <laughs> Now they do a lot of like adding a foamy. If you don't have the mounds in your yard, then you would want to target the plants that you're protecting, the trails that you're seeing, and then kind of like the little openings that they're popping up out of. And on that one, I would probably just use a residual duster spray since you you basically are having foraging ants come into your yard and just kind of knock those back and hopefully they'll go find something to eat in somebody else's yard. Yeah. Or something to feed their garden. Will freeze kill them? I'm sure that's what everyone's asking. Everybody's hoping. No, it's not. They're too deep. So if you think about it, they're in the ground. So if they want to escape cold temperatures, they're just going to go further down into the ground. And like I said, these colonies are massive. They have this extensive tunnel system with chambers and all that stuff. And so they can just move down into the chambers that are further down into the ground. And so they're going to be just fine. I do get a lot of people that notice that they have these in the wintertime. And I think that is just because there isn't as much stuff available. And so they're coming into areas that you might not have seen them before because they're really looking for food to feed to their gardens in those areas. And so they may pop up in areas that you didn't see them previously. Mm Mm-hmm. While leafcutter ants can be a challenge, they can also be extremely interesting to watch if you are interested in learning more about insects. Definitely appreciate what they do do, but if you have them near your house or feeding on plants in your yard, then take that into consideration for learning how to manage them. Depending on if it's by your house or far away, that may affect whether you contact a professional professional to take care of that problem for you or not. So if you have any questions, you can go to extensionentomology.tamu.edu and we will catch you next time on Bugs by the Yard. Thanks for listening.